We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I want to wish you a good morning this morning. And if you are online also, I want to wish you a good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is once again in the Book of Wisdom, the Proverbs. We're in chapter 27 this morning. If you would turn there, I'd like you to follow along with me as I read. I know not... Everybody has the same translation, but they're pretty close and uh, will help us to get it into our eyes as well as into our ears here. Proverbs 27 starts out with a bang here. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, as believers in Christ, let me encourage you, if a brother or sister comes along and says something in a conversation to you that may seem to be a little, oh, what's the word, offensive or difficult to take, take it. Put it up here, think about it. Um, be corrected. Uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Many times as a pastor, I've had to tell people very frank things, and I hope not to lose their friendship, their attendance at the church, those sorts of things. But uh, our job as believers with one another, if, uh, as we'll see later on, is if iron sharpens iron, sometimes some sparks can fly, and uh, we need that. We do need that, so... Let us be sure not to be so thin-skinned that we just run away from that sort of thing. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul every bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. A man who wanders from his responsibilities, a man who wanders from his home, his wife, his children... That's out of place, my friends, like a bird that wanders from its nest. Verse number 9, Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. There's the other side of that iron sharpening iron thing where you receive counsel from somebody and you say, man, that's good stuff. That's helpful. I didn't think of it that way. Uh, it can really improve you know, your approach to things. Verse 10, do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Boy, there's so much truth here, isn't there? My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. A prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. The simple pass on and are punished. There was a season of days in my life when I used this verse quite a bit. Uh, what we want to be able to do is like look ahead a couple steps. You know, we don't have to be, you know, Kasparov and a master chess player here and look, you know, 13 moves ahead. But let's look ahead a couple steps at least and say, you know, if that place is not good for me, don't go down that street. You know, if that person is causing me problems, uh, if this thing is breaking my sanctification, if whatever, I'll just bypass that and just move on and go somewhere else. The, 
The prudent man foresees the evil and, and hides himself. Verse 13, take the garment of him who is surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he is surety for a seductress. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Whoever restrains her restrains the wind and grasps grasps oil with his right hand. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Whoever keeps the fig tree will eat its fruit. So he who waits on his master will be honored. As in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. Hell and destruction are never full. Man, that is the case, isn't it? So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Think of that like uh, in the, the way the, the author in Ecclesiastes says it. It's like you keep seeing things that come in, but they never get full. You know, it's like a strange phenomena. More comes in, more comes in, more comes in, but it's never full. So I guess some of it's discarded or simplified or reduced or something. But uh, verse 21, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, and a man is valued by what others say of him. Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. Strange thing how people cling to that foolishness. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the hay is removed and the tender grass shows itself and the herbs of the mountains are gathered in, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. You shall have enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the nourishment of your maidservants. That's interesting. I guess we miss out on some of the blessings of the agricultural side of Scripture because we, you know, the most agriculture many of us know is we go to the store and, you know, we get into the natural food section or uh, or the produce. <laughs> so, yes, no, nobody has goats here. Goat milk, goat cheese, all of that. Yes, okay. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 this morning as we will be finishing up what I missed last week and beginning into chapters 7 and 8 today. I was thinking this morning, um, my job is not to uh, make, oh, how can I say? It's not to make the preaching as easy as possible. It's not to make it as uh, smooth and um, Oh, uh, easy to swallow or ear-tickling as uh, some people might like. My job is to report exactly what's here, to give it to you straight, and uh, that might entail stretching your minds and your spirits a little bit, hopefully upwards toward God. We have a big job to do. I'm, I'm responsible, and uh, all of us really mutually are responsible for edifying one another in the faith, building one another up to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are responsible for reaching out to others to do that. That's our job corporately. Our responsible, we are responsible, rather, to know the Scriptures because God has given it to us, and uh, we're not to be lazy about this, not to be lazy whatsoever. Uh, we need to know the Bible, and uh, we need to know where to find things. We need to know uh, the truth of things. Uh, sometimes people will say Bible verses to me that are not actually Bible verses. <laughs> I'm quite sure that I've never read that in the Scriptures, and I have traversed it a few times. Um, I might not remember it all, and there may come a day when I lose my memory. I hope not, but... Uh, you know, once you've been through the New Testament uh, many dozens of times, you kind of recognize things that fit there or don't fit there, that are there or are not there. So, but our job is to learn the Word of God, and that includes this portion of Scripture. There's really not, there are not many portions of Scripture that are more attacked than Genesis 1 through 11 today. Uh, we have uh, a new, a new, um, form of attack coming all the time. The newest one, I think, today in the broader culture is that on gender. 
Uh, you see that with regard to uh, the uh, teaching in Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll see it again here in chapter 7 and 8, uh, that God made male and female. There's no confusion about that whatsoever. There's not been any confusion about that for millennia, and yet today we have people who profess to be wise, so wise, in fact, that they have, they have veered off the path of wisdom and circled back around to the side of foolishness. That's what's happened. And uh, it's a sad thing. It's a dangerous thing. It's, it's actually devastating to young people today. And uh, we have people in the medical establishment that are pushing this and all. Scripture is very clear. But before that, I mean, Scripture was attacked for the doctrine of creation, the age of the earth, uh, the order of events of the creation, uh, even professing Christians have tried to take this apart and put it back together according to their own image of how things are. And it's a really terrible situation. And as, uh, as some have correctly said, if you just if you cut out the foundation, you have nothing left for Bible or Christianity to stand upon. And we will not let that happen here, certainly not under my watch and not in this church God keep us faithful to his word. The chapter uh, 6, uh, we noticed, uh, uh, introduced Noah's genealogy and then uh, began to talk to us about the problems that were found on the earth in this uh, uh, early time frame, which actually is about 1,600 years after the creation, best as we can tell. Uh, those years, those centuries leading up to that time in which we'll come to in Genesis 7 with the flood of Noah. God uh, expressed sorrow because of the wickedness of creation, but he found a man on the earth named Noah who was just and righteous and, and had his family following with him. We left off last time in verses 14 through 16 in chapter 6 with the instructions that God gave to build a boat, which has commonly come to be called the ark. And the general plans for that were given in these verses with the building materials, the gopher wood, uh, a, a very hard wood, uh, the rooms that were to be there, the double-sided pitch that was to be put inside and outside uh, to seal uh, the boat and help to make it waterproof. The dimensions of this uh, boat were tremendous, 300 feet, not feet, 300 cubits and 500 uh, long and 50 wide and 30 high, or over 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Some believe the cubit was the royal cubit, which would have made the boat over 500 or near to 500 feet long. Regardless of the detail, it was a huge structure. To give you an idea about the size, consider that this is taller than a typical four-story building. Uh, it had three levels that God prescribed, and so it would have had about floors 13 or 14 feet in height, plus or minus, maybe a dozen feet. Significantly longer than a football field, it would have displaced around 22,000 tons. Now, a modern aircraft carrier would displace somewhere around 100,000 tons, 100 and, um, uh, let me see, I put that down, yeah, letter C there. Uh, the USS Gerald R. Ford, slightly larger than this, uh, than these other carriers, 1,106 feet long, a displacement of 112,000 tons. I don't know if you know what that means, but that's a lot. <laughs> these are huge machines, huge floating vessels, uh, volume of 1.518 million cubic feet, 569 modern railroad car, stock cars worth, a train to fill to take that same amount of volume would take about 5.5 miles long of train cars to make it the equivalent size. You can see how it would have taken Noah a long time to build this structure, uh, even with hired help, which I, I'm guessing he probably had, but you know, even if he didn't. This is as large as the largest ocean-going vessels up to the 1800s. Some believe, in fact, that its size was as large as a wooden boat could possibly be. The physics wouldn't allow any more than that. But in any case, the ark was designed by God and built by Noah as an instrument of rescue 
a place of safety for Noah's family. It would save them and the animals from destruction and any air-breathing creatures that were not on that boat would have perished. Verse 17, God said, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Obviously, this doesn't count the fish. They don't have the breath of life, the air-breathing part going on. But, of course, many of them would have perished as well in the cataclysm that followed, as we'll read. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, verse 19, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of animals after their kind and every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Obviously, the male and the female again. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Now just imagine the tremendous amount of work that it was required, not only to build, but also to gather the food for this journey. And not only for the journey, but for afterwards. How long afterwards? I don't know how long afterwards. They had to eat from the store of food that they, were, that they supplied themselves before the flood. Chapter 7, the global deluge. We start the new notes that are available to you in the bulletin and, and also online. The old notes and the new notes are there for you. Chapter 7, the deluge, the flood. God judged sinful mankind but extended grace to Noah and ultimately to the rest of the human race that would come from them. These chapters, especially 7, 8, and 9, tell of a most incredible historical account. God meted out a judgment of the world in worldwide proportions on the earth because of the systemic wickedness of mankind. The historical event here is the basis for hundreds of flood stories and myths and legends and cultures throughout the world. You can find them everywhere in the Middle East and the Far East. And, of course, we have them in the West, uh, this, this account in the West, which is the basis for those other accounts. This event also provides a very plausible explanation for many of the topographical features that we see on the Earth, like the deposition of different layers, the canyons, the ocean basins, etc., as well as evidence of marine life in faraway places from the sea on the top of mountains. It explains the massive amount of fossil fuel material that is found throughout the world, uh, that being created by the rapid destruction and compression of a millennia and a half of flourishing plant growth on the planet. Just a little terminology here. There's a word that some people use, and you'll see in the literature, called antediluvian antediluvian, which means before the time of the deluge, before the flood. Today, that word is sometimes, although not in my experience, commonly used to refer to a person. If somebody says you're antediluvian, that kind of means you're a caveman. You're out of date, you're old-fashioned, you know, you, you're not up to speed on all of the, the latest uh, things, maybe uh, like a, a Luddite or something like that. Um, we are situated in the post-Diluvian world. I'm going to take the study here in chapter 7 and 8 and divide it into three segments. Number one, before the flood. Number two, during. And number three, after. Very simple outline, but we're trying to just communicate the text and the meaning of it here, as I indicated earlier. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, God said to Noah, Come into the ark. You and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds uh, of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. There again we have the male and female business going on here. This is basic biology, the facts of basic biology. Verse number four, for after seven days, seven more days rather, I will cause it to rain on the earth uh, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. 
So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female. There's the fourth reference to that, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, which is in the breath, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air, They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So God told Noah to go into the ark because he's righteous. I just point out in my notes that uh, that points this fact out to us that it is good, worthwhile, perks to being righteous. Even though the world downplays that as prudish and old-fashioned, you'll always find blessing in obeying God's commands, will you not? Noah found that. He found protection from adverse consequences. In fact, blessing is part of obedience, just as difficulties are inherent in disobedience. The way of the wicked is going to be paved with thorns. It just is how wickedness operates. You'll never regret living for the Lord, even if there are temporary things like ridicule and persecution because of it. Living for God may even save your life. It has done that for many people. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why? So that you might live long on the earth. You disobey your parents. It can be a big-time problem. Now, seven days before the rains began... Uh, God instructed Noah to take seven pairs of every clean animal, one pair of every unclean animal, seven pairs of every bird into the ark, and this was to keep them alive after the flood. A male and his female. We've mentioned that already a couple of times. Verse 5 says, All of this Noah faithfully did. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Thank God for Noah. Thank God for that example of obedience. We can't replicate this situation, nor do we hope ever to do that. But you know what? You can be faithful to God, like Noah was. Interesting that the animals had an instinct, some of the animals, an instinct to go to Noah. Did you notice that? God brought the animals to him, chapter 6 and 7. It's a daunting task to think about gathering all of those animals, perhaps hundreds and perhaps thousands of different animals that they had to house and feed and take care of the waste and all of that that they did, but just to gather them, first of all. And Noah was 600 years old when the flood started. So, you know, I guess, uh, how do you feel if you had to live 600 years on this earth? Yes, so we can uh, use his age to locate the general date of the flood post-creation and kind of connect forward through the genealogies all the way up to Abraham so we get a a general idea of the age of the earth that way. We've talked about that before. So when all the animals and people were inside, uh, chapter 7, verse 16 tells us that God shut them in. I don't know exactly how that worked, but maybe there was a kind of a locking mechanism on the outside and one on the inside perhaps to seal that door. 
Of course, if I were building a boat like that that didn't have many entry, entry points, I would be certainly careful to make sure that that entry point was waterproof because I don't want to have to be getting the bucket out and bailing the water out of the ark to continue to be able to be afloat. But, uh, you know, in any case, Noah was a, certainly a very ingenious fellow. Um, well, I think we, in, we meaning humanity today, looks back on these people with a kind of arrogant smugness that we know everything, and they were stupid. They couldn't build things, you know, they barely knew what a wheel was. You know, God made Adam very smart. And we're not talking about, you know, evolutionary time scales going back 100,000 years when they, you know, finally figured out what a wheel was or something. This is crazy stuff. God made people geniuses. <laughs> I mean, really smart. You see some of the creations that people make the clever machines and devices and all of that sort of stuff, with all the time that he had, the tools that he could build. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not for us to sit here and judge and say, you know, those people, those people probably smarter than a lot of us, frankly. Um, so Noah got in. He had a, a mechanism on the door to close it, seal it, and I'm sure they had a way to get out even if God didn't open the door from the outside. It doesn't say that he did later on. So that's before the flood, during the flood. Now, it's part of what we've already read and then into chapter 8 as well. How long was this event? How long was this event? Well, it started in Noah's 600th year, the second month and the 17th day of the month. We read that in chapter 7 and verse 11. The ark came to rest later on. On the, in the Ararat region of Turkey in the seventh month, in the 17th day of the month, five months after the flood began. Okay, so for five months they are riding around in this boat. This is uh, in agreement with the 150 days mentioned earlier. The waters decreased from then until the 10th month, two months and 14 days later, about 74 days later, at which point the tops of the mountains could become visible. And then after 40 days, Noah started his tests to see if they could leave the ark. Now let's read in chapter 8. So God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the great deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the, one, of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Um, let me see. Second, seventh. Yes, okay. I don't think I misspoke, but maybe I did. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month decreased. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. He sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned to the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded, from the earth. I guess they didn't, they didn't have uh, a lot of windows on this ark or uh, I guess maybe ability to go out on the top deck and scope around the situation and a telescope and all of that. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to all their families, went out of the ark. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Notice that's an ongoing evaluation. Still true. Nor will I again destroy everything as every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. <clears throat> so Noah did his tests to see about the, if the ground was dried, and uh, there are a number of days given, you know, a bunch of different time periods. And what we can do is add those all up, and besides we can check the beginning point and the ending point based on Noah's life 600 years in the 601st year, and we can see that the flood is one year and 11 days, end to end, uh, when they went in and when they got out. And you can add up those days and, and add them up to 371, and you might say, well, a year is 365, so a year and 11, what, what's going on? Well, the, the, the um, years are probably 360-day years. That was a common... Um, measure of the year in uh, ancient times. And so a year of world history was wiped out by the flood. Uh, It wasn't until about 57 days uh, after they kind of figured this all out that they left the ark when the earth was dried in the second month and the 27th day of the month. Um, And so there they were over a year in the boat. What about the water? of this flood. The duration is one thing. What about the water? Well, it says there were 40 days and nights of rain. And this seems to have been a global uh, rainfall, if you will. It's hard to imagine how that's possible, but it's really not natural, naturally possible. God had to kind of poke the earth to get it to do this. Uh, it says, uh, heaven, heaven's floodgates were open, the fountains of the great deep opened up, and water fell from above. Water on the earth spurted up from beneath as well. Uh, those fountains, by the way, are still under our feet. I bet if we had uh, Cribbly Welling, uh, well drilling come out here and drill down right on the church property after 30, 40, 50 feet, we'd probably find water. Water everywhere. There are numerous aquifers and even subterranean rivers and river systems. For example, I found uh, one called the Sistema Actun in Mexico, the world's longest underground river running for 160 miles underground. If the earth were entirely flat with no ocean basins or mountain ranges, there is so much water that we know about that the earth would be covered to a depth of 9,000 feet in water. That's how many? That's almost two miles, isn't it? Mile and two thirds or three quarters, whatever. If all of the Earth's water were piled on top of the 48 contiguous United States, we would be looking upwards at 107 miles deep of water above us. That's how much water we're talking about on the Earth. So, obviously, to cover the Earth when it's in a flatter configuration, which is probably most certainly what it was before, uh, is really no problem. Uh, the water covered the highest mountains by 21 feet, 15 cubits. Noah, how, do you, how could you have known that? Well, I mean, Noah probably knew how to take soundings. I don't know exactly how that works, but you could you know, do this little sound and listen to the reflection coming back from the bottom and figure out about how deep it was. Evidently enough depth there that the uh, bottom of the ark would not drag on the, on the shoals, so to speak. Um, so then the water began to decrease after 150 days, and um, we're left with the world that we, we see today. What about the long-term impact of the flood? Various organizations, especially two that I know about, Institute for Creation Research and Answers in Genesis have done a ton of research on this kind of stuff and have taught about what could have happened, what, why the earth looks like it does, what the flood would have done to the earth. This all actually began in the 1960s with the publication of the book, The Genesis Flood, by Whitcomb 
and uh, John Whitcomb and Henry Morris, and that is credited with really launching what's called the creation research or the young earth creation movement, and in my view, really responsible for Christians finally reclaiming the biblical view that is given here in the literal text of Scripture. Thank God for those men and what they did. They've received their reward from the Lord now, or at least some of it, as they await the coming of the of Christ to the earth to reign in his kingdom, but they uh, were great ministers of the word of God for us and launched this whole thing to give believers a confidence that we don't have to be ashamed of what the scripture says. The, uh, these researchers and many Christians, such as myself, believe that the flood plays a key role in interpreting geological discoveries today the accompanying tectonic movement, the tsunamis, the general hydrological flow of the water obviously would have had an enormous impact on the geography of the, of the world. I mean, if, if you just look at the great damage caused by little events on the earth, Mount St. Helens, for example, or a hurricane coming in ca- called Katrina coming into New Orleans, what did it do there? Devastation. That's only one little storm. I say it's big, but it's little in terms of the whole globe. And then that brings us to the question, what about the spatial extent of the flood, the spatial extent of it? We read here that the flood was universal. Remember, the Bible says that the whole world was filled with violence and God was going to solve that problem by judging the whole world. So thus the flood could not be a local phenomenon. Okay? If it were a local phenomenon in the Mesopotamian region, well, this comforts you know, uh, believers in science and, and uh, non-Bible believers uh, comforts them to uh, in their attempt to keep science and human reason at the top of their authority structure because if the flood is true, that means God is in charge. And they have somebody to deal with who can do a lot more than send a little hurricane here or there or a little volcanic eruption here or there. And so, yes, closing your eyes to this, may bring you comfort, but God is still there even if your eyes are closed. You can't see him, but he's still there. Why, why, if it was a local flood, why would Noah simply not have moved out of the region? Come on, guys, let's go over the mountain range because there's going to be a flood here. Why did the animals need to be saved? For many would not have been in the region flooded. How could the water be higher than the mountaintops? I mean... Water seeks its own level, so wouldn't it have gone over the sides of those mountains and into the next region? Of course. God's purpose in the flood was to judge all of humankind. So the flood had to be universal flood, a global, worldwide occurrence. The fact that the flood involved a huge outpouring of water from above and from beneath would indicate a worldwide cataclysm. I mean, just imagine if there was a super humongous earthquake that raised the basin of the Pacific, a large portion of it, by 100 feet, 300 feet, 500 feet. That's not very much for the earth. 1,000 feet. What would happen? The tsunamis that would result would be tremendous. Lots of water everywhere. Also, the size of the ark. God would not have had to have Noah build such a huge boat if it was just a local flood. The New Testament also gives plain evidence that the flood was universal, 2 Peter 3 says, the world perished. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, where we've been studying lately on Sunday and Wednesday evening, says that the flood took them all away. So a simple reading of this text portrays the event as a worldwide event. And since Scripture is inerrant, we let its portrayal stand. We certainly do not question it. The result of this was a massive judgment. As designed, it produced the worldwide death of air-breathing creatures. 1 Peter 3.20 tells us only eight people were saved. The remainder of the people on the earth died, along with all the animals that breathe air. Now, this seems harsh to us. Why would God do that? I mean, he made everything. Why would he destroy it? Well, we have to kind of factor in that it's not his fault that we sinned that humanity sinned. But I think we need to get the idea that Job had 
The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's God. He has power over both life and death. Now, finally, I know we're moving through this quickly, but I want to touch on just a moment the psychological impact that this event would have had. It's not spoken of here, but I'm just thinking with you about how would this have impacted Noah and his wife and his sons and their three wives. The text doesn't tell us specifically, but they had to be traumatized by the knowledge that outside of the walls of their boat, people were perishing in that opening day or days or week of the flood. The loss of life numbered in the multiple millions of humans and animals. Also, they were cooped up in that ark, busily caring for all of these animals, feeding them. They must have been tired. Uh, They had probably ark fever, cabin fever, ark fever set in. How much light could they have enjoyed during the daytime? The 40 days that they were in there at the beginning were probably unnaturally dark because it was constant rain. Knowing that God was permitting his wrath to fall full force on the people they knew and many they did not know must have been very difficult for them. That's what I mean by thinking about the psychology of what's going on in the minds of Noah and his family. Have you ever thought about it from their perspective? We just kind of read over this and say, you know, yeah, hurrah, great for Noah and his family. You know, God judged and they were saved. They came out and they knew the fate of humanity rests on our eight shoulders. That's heavy. After the flood, God spoke to Noah and told him to leave the ark, bring out the animals. God, uh, or Noah rather, built an altar and offered sacrifice to God from the clean animals that he had, I'll say the extra clean animals that he had brought in. God then promised that he would not destroy the earth again in the way that he had done so earlier. But, as I alluded to earlier, in 8.21, chapter 8, verse 21, God said, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So if you think that this solved the problem of Genesis 6 and all the evil that was going on, you would be incorrect because... That seed of evil was taken again through Noah and his family and passed on down to the children in such a way that they would carry on the evil of their forebearers. Um, God also promised what we call limited uniformitarianism. Now, that's a big word. A limited uniformity in the flow of the earth's cycle of days and nights and of seasons. Do you see that in verse number 22? The reason that you can count on summer coming after spring, after winter, after fall, every year, every annual cycle, is because of what God said here. You say, I'm not going to be you know, poking the earth to cause it to do these odd things all the time. You're going to have this cycle on which you can count for all the days that the earth remains. Now, some people take this too far and they say, well, God has, not God, but they say the earth has always been this way. It just is from the beginning of time. And uh, they ignore, Peter says, the, you know, the obvious of this global flood. Yeah, things have continued largely since way back, but that doesn't guarantee they will continue that way. In fact, there's going to be a major judgment coming. And it wasn't that way during the time of the flood. There are singularities, as it were, in the world's history, direct miraculous interventions by God. The basic flow is, yes, we're going to have this consistency, but there are times in which God intervenes. Now, in conclusion, let me just say this. The universal flood is important for us to uphold just like it's important for us to uphold the creation account as written. My friends, if you've got to do all kinds of machinations to get the Bible to be true, 
then don't tell me that John 3.16 is true because the kinds of machinations you need to do to make Genesis true in your mind, you ought to need to do those to John 3.16 as well. Okay, either the Bible's true or it's not true, the whole thing. There's no evidence here that this is poetry, that this is a framework, that this is some kind of um, uh, myth or cosmos, uh, a cosmic temple kind of creation. All those views are out there about the creation. This is a straightforward, simple narrative about what happened. This is what we believe. This is what we trust. If we don't trust the opening chapters of the Bible, we cannot trust any of it. God had Moses write what we needed to know, and then he ensured its accurate transmission to us. Secondly, secondly, the flood account is not something which you should be ashamed about as if it were a myth. Look, I've been there, okay? Sitting in the research laboratories of the University of Michigan, high-end computer engineering, okay? I've been there years ago. You would, be, you would be looked down upon for believing this sort of stuff. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> um, we have... Uh, very good reasons for believing this. We have very good science. Uh, besides that, we have faith that God has given to us. We've been caused to embrace the truth of God's word. And I, I go back to, you know, it's like this. Now, I know people can say this about different things, about wrong things even, but sometimes back in school, say middle school and high school, you're sitting there and the teacher asks a question and all kinds of answers pop up. And I, I, I wasn't the most outgoing student. I would just sit there and listen and learn and do my homework and do my business and go on. And, and you, you would just sit there and say, I know all these answers are totally wrong. They, had, they didn't pay attention to what the teacher said or what the book said. I'm sitting here knowing that. Even though I'm in the minority, it doesn't matter. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. So... I've become accustomed to not caring that I'm in the minority when it comes to something that is true. True is true whether a thousand people believe it or one person believes it. It doesn't matter. Okay, Let God be true and every man a liar. So you can propagandize the world to believe all that you want. I mean, today 55% of people in the United States believe it's okay to kill a baby in the mother's womb. Yeah, God needs to have mercy because his wrath is going to be poured out upon this land by and by, and it's going to be a sad day. And there's going to be a lot of collateral damage too, by the way, because of all the devastation of it. I pray God that he prevents those 55% from all making their voice heard on this ballot in November. But we're, we're not ashamed as if this is a myth. It really did happen despite all the denials by people today. Don't be ashamed of the Bible's teaching, even if all of your scientific friends mock it. Being ashamed is evidence that you fear people more than you fear God. Don't fear people, my friends. Don't fear people. Third, and and one of the reasons why we go over this is, look, I, I have a scientific background, by God's grace, highly educated, both in technical and biblical fields. Um, and I am telling you this and hope, hoping, if nothing else, to bolster your confidence in what you believe. My, my preaching doesn't make it true. Again, a thousand people can preach a different thing. It doesn't matter. Or I can preach the right thing. It doesn't make it true or untrue. But uh, I'm hoping to increase your confidence and say there are very good reasons why we believe these things People far more knowledgeable than me know about these things. They've studied them out. There's books on them. There are PhD researchers that are believers that believe the Bible as it is written. Of course, there are many that don't because they have other motives. But we do. Don't be ashamed of God's word. Third, the flood is an example of how God can and will judge the world just as easily as he created it. He will do so again, though next time not with a flood but a tribulation the millennial kingdom after that, and then a great fiery judgment in which the earth will be destroyed. So not all things will continue as they have in recent history. Substantial changes are coming, 
And the question is, are you ready for those substantial changes? Finally, because of the continued evaluation of mankind as being extremely sinful, according to 821, we intuitively understand as Christians that we need to do as much as possible in this world to restrain sin. We need to open our mouths to say that is wrong. We will not abide it. We need to train our children to be righteous people and hopefully saved people, Christian people. We are to demand that our young people be righteous while they are in our home and even beyond. Christians today are a major reason that the world has as much good in it as it does. We need more, and it's a lot of work to keep good going. We need to vote to restrain sin. We need to advocate to reduce evil. We need to be busy about good works which are profitable to men, to people. Please, do your part to be a restrainer of evil. There will come a day when God will remove the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, and the church in which he dwells, and then you will see evil burst out like you can't believe. But until then, God has put us here, and we need to restrain evil in our homes, in our church, in our families, in our communities, and just say, we're not going to have it. We're not going to stand for it because we know it's devastating, and we know judgment is coming, and we don't want more of that. We want more goodness in our, in our world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask that you would help us to take to heart these words that have been shared from the scriptures today. Lord, the, the age in which we live is really no better than where we were before. Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. But we can do something about it, and we know about it, and we thank you for that. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless our, our lives so that we can serve you faithfully like Noah did. What you told him to do, he did. May it be that what you tell us to do, we do as well. We'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name.